Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. All right, so this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his own household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Good evening, everyone. As usual, it is fantastic to be here with you all. I am a little under the weather, so uh, hopefully uh, I can avoid the coughing and sneezing for the next 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, But if I am not able to avoid it, then I ask you to bear with me a bit on that. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we are grateful for time spent here as a family. Um, uh, This sort of idea, this extended church family uh, such a biblical concept, but as we'll see, also kind of an odd concept, and the roots of it are really beautiful, and uh, we thank you for this text in Ephesians where we can start to unpack what this looks like uh, for us to be the household of faith and what it means for us to have child thanksgivings and to participate with one another, not just to, to help when we can help, but to genuinely be co-participants in one another's lives as brothers and sisters in the faith. We're just grateful for this, uh, this ability to be able to have something like this, Father. And we know that all of that is rooted in you, in the gift of your son Jesus to us. Uh, we're grateful for that, for uniting us first with you as our Father in heaven through our older brother Jesus, and then also uniting us with one another as a family of faith. We're just grateful for that gift. In Jesus' mighty and holy name we pray. Amen. So imagine with me for just a moment two business persons having a drink at a pub. And one business person wants to communicate to the other business person a little something about what it is that that person does in their business. I was at a talk 10 or 12 years ago uh, where there was a corporate strategist who said that when these sorts of things play out and they happen all the time, especially when someone's excited about a strategy they have with maybe a business that they're working on, that sometimes they want to share that with somebody else. So this corporate strategist said that essentially, really what you would like to do, what a good thing to do, is that if you're having a a drink at a pub with somebody and you want to share your strategy with them, that you should be able to scribble the whole thing out on a napkin. 
that it needs to be complex enough to be compelling, but that if it's so complex that you need like a two-hour formal meeting to explain what you're doing, that you're not really communicating well enough, that you have to be able to sit over a drink at a pub with somebody, pull open a napkin, grab a pen, and really be able to scribble out exactly what it is that you want to communicate about, what it is you're excited about, and why it matters. And it should be compelling enough that on that one napkin, they can take the napkin home with them, unfold it later, look at it, understand the whole thing, and then maybe themselves even get a bit excited about it, right? It's kind of a cool idea, be able to, a napkin strategy, that's what he called it. I thought, I thought about this a lot ever since I saw that talk 10 or 12 years ago about what it would look like to scribble out a strategy, strategy is probably the wrong word for the gospel, but to be able to write down a compelling vision of the gospel on a napkin. And I think there are lots of ways in the history of the church where we've done this. In the 2,000 years since the time of Jesus, the church has always had very simple, concrete ways to explain to people what the gospel is. I would say that I think more often than not, we, we almost go too far in the direction of oversimplifying it to the point where we leave out really important details. And I'm going to communicate maybe a little bit about that now for the next 20 minutes or so. But here's really sort of the, the napkin strategy idea of how we normally talk about the gospel. That essentially God created all things, right? This is the foundation of everything that Christians believe, is that there is a God who is the sovereign creator of all things, and not just that he's sovereign, but that he's good. He has to really be both. If he's sovereign but he's not good, we're all in an awful lot of trouble. So at the very foundation of the gospel is that there's a God who is both sovereign and good, and that this sovereign and good creator created all things, and that he didn't create it because he had to, because that would make him dependent upon his creation. He created because he wanted to, because it just brought him joy to do so. He creates out of his goodness because the creation itself was good, and God is good, and he just took joy in doing so. So he creates, but the apex of this creation, the thing that he enjoyed creating the most, was humanity, because he had made us more like him than anything else he had made. But that very creation that he enjoyed so much, humanity, sinned against God, rebelled against God, and severed the relationship with God. Now, we call this sin, and a lot of the time when we think about sin, we just think about the simple concept of disobedience to God. And in many places in the Bible, that is accurate for the most part. This idea that to sin against God is to, to disobey him or rebel against him. But really at the heart of all sin is one very particular sin that is this constant theme in the Bible over and over and over again. And it's this, that God is a king. That when he created all things, that he set himself up as a king over the, uh, what for him was a kingdom. And that the people that he created were not just this creation that he thought of as pets like you might think of your dog. Oh, I know some people that think of their dogs maybe in very high <laughs> in very high terms, but God didn't think of us like pets. He thought of us like co-heirs in the creation that he had made. So he makes this creation that he's proud of and, and he takes joy in. He makes us to be co-heirs and co-rulers with him. So it's not just that we disobey. It's that we actually rebelled so much against the creator king, despite the fact that he had made us to be co-heirs over this wonderful creation, we rebelled against him in a particular way. And the particular rebellion was that we had decided that we didn't want to be co-heirs underneath the, the ultimate regent of God. We didn't want to be vice-regents. We wanted to be kings and queens of our own kingdoms. That's the ultimate nature of that sin. It's a kingdom-oriented sin. That we looked at God's kingdom and said, we don't want to rule under you as co-heirs. We want to do our own thing. We want to be in charge of our own kingdoms. And ever since, we've set about building our own kingdoms. And our own kingdoms are always being built in opposition to the kingdom of God. 
even to the point where oftentimes when we communicate the gospel to people, it sounds almost offensive or strange because it's so counterintuitive because we've been living so long on this earth building our own forms of kingdoms that his kingdom no longer even makes sense to us in a lot of ways. We have to sort of recalibrate our thinking when we come to faith to realize, oh, wow, God's kingdom is very different than the kingdom I've been trying to build my whole life. And this sin perpetuates itself in the Bible over and over again. Now, the core of this aspect of the gospel, what you can call the vertical aspect of the gospel, meaning up and down, is that God looked at us as these supposed co-regents who rebelled against him and his kingdom and tried to build our own kingdoms. And God said, even despite that, I still love you so much. My love for you is so compelling that I'm going to fix your problem for you and still offer you an opportunity to bring you back in as co-regents despite the fact that you've been walking away from me ever since I created you. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to die, and yes, he came to die. He, well, first of all, he came to live, right? He came to live the perfect life, the life that you and I were supposed to live but didn't. But he came to live the perfect life as a king, right? The kind of ruler, the co-regent, the co-heir that we were all supposed to be and we failed to be. Jesus came to be that, to show us what that was supposed to look like. And then he was killed for it because it was so counterintuitive to all the kingdoms of the earth, particularly the Roman Empire and the, and the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus's life, they looked at him, and again, it was counterintuitive to them. They thought, what Jesus is doing doesn't make sense to us, and it's offensive to us, and so they killed him for it. They put him on a cross. So he was doing the thing we were all supposed to do all along, and the very thing he was doing that we were supposed to do but weren't doing is the very thing that got him killed. And in that act, his death on the cross was the, also the thing that was then offering to us a chance to be saved because we all deserve death in God's eyes for walking away, rebelling, and building our own kingdoms. Jesus takes that on for us as an offering, a sacrifice, so that we no longer have to die this ultimate spiritual death because Jesus has taken all of our penalty for all of our sin and our rebellion upon himself. So that God can then look at us and say, well, I've, I've, I've taken care of all that. On, on my own unique son, Jesus, so that I can look all, at all of you again and say, now I'm giving you this opportunity once again to come in and be co-heirs, co-regents over this kingdom that I have made. This is very distinct in a lot of Paul's letters, especially Romans chapter 8. That whole chapter, that's the entire concept of the chapter, is that you can be co-heirs with Christ as the ultimate king of all things. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, it even says that at the end of all things, when God really comes to remake and refashion the earth that we've all corrupted and destroyed, it says that Jesus is the king, is going to offer the purified earth, the purified kingdom back to God the Father as a gift. And we all get to be a part of the celebration of that if we come to Christ in faith. We've been brought back into an opportunity to co-rule with God through Christ and to take up the role we had always intended to have. And it's not just that God is a distant king like many kings of the earth. He's a father at the same time. He is your father, my father, if we come in faith. This is the vertical aspect of the gospel. But as God's people, which started with Israel and a man named Abraham some 4,000 years ago, as God's people continued to try to build their own kingdoms, God had always said through his people that one thing he wanted them to do that is that he brought people into himself in relationship. He wanted to, them to be a light to those that did not know God. So he said to Abraham, for example, 4,000 years ago, through you I'm going to build this nation called Jerusalem, and it will be the beginnings of the recreation of my kingdom on earth. But, but one of the roles I have for you is to be a light to the nations. I'm going to start with you in, in Israel, but you're going to be a light to all of the nations that do not know. 
Well, we see in the, in the Old Testament that almost right away, the Israelites got so enamored with their role as God's special people that they started ignoring the nations entirely. In some books like 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings in the Old Testament, you barely even hear about the nations at all. Israel was busy just sort of being enamored with their own place with God, and they sort of forgot about this mandate to build relationship, not just vertically with God, but horizontally with the people around them. Okay? So these are two aspects of the gospel. The vertical aspect, you being made right with God through Christ. Jesus accomplishes that. But then the horizontal aspect is God then saying to you, now that you've been brought back into the fold and I've saved you and made you a member of my family and I'm your father, I want you also to rebuild relationship with everybody else around you. That's the horizontal aspect of the gospel. And that's the thing we don't talk about maybe as often as we should. And throughout the Old Testament, you see the nations just being ignored. Some prophets tried to bring it back in. If you read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, what we call the major prophets, there's all sorts of stuff in those books about being a light to the nations again. And those same prophets who kept calling out, hey, we need to be a light to the nations, they were basically persecuted by their fellow Israelites for saying that very thing. They were like, we don't need to be a light to those nations. They're wicked. They're not like us. They don't have a special relationship with God like we do. We don't want to reach out to them. They're impure. And so these prophets were like, no, 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 you've missed the point. You were always supposed to be a light to the nations. You were always supposed to horizontally build this relationship with the people around you. That was always what God wanted, and the Israelites just didn't get it. And they even killed some of the prophets who called out and tried to convince them about this need to rebuild relationships with the people around them. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus really inspires this in his followers in a new way. He did what the prophets even couldn't do, which was finally convince a lot of the people who came to follow him that it wasn't really just about their insular little, little group, that they had to reach out to the people around them, that the vertical aspect he had come to take care of to make us right with God again. But the horizontal aspect was something he was sending us all out to do then. Now that we're co-regents in God's kingdom, our major role is to declare what that looks like, to declare the beauties, the manifest beauties of God's kingdom in the world, and to try to show people that even if it's counterintuitive, that God's kingdom is so much better than the kingdoms that we're trying to build for ourselves. That's our major role, is to go out and do this. But, so right after this, you see churches start to pop up. Jesus dies on the cross, we get forgiveness for sins, Jesus rises from the grave and ascends into heaven, and many people witness this event, and that fires them all up, right? So they go, and they're preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved, and churches are popping up. What is it, though, that the church started to look like in those first hundred years as they started to try to rebuild relationships with the people around them, and what, how did that relate, then, to the way the world looked at the time? This is a really important question. And there was this uh, scholar named Wayne Meeks in 1983 who wrote this book called The First Urban Christians. It's still to this day massively influential. It really shook up the academic world at the time. And essentially what Wayne Meeks did was he came along and said he did a ton of research on the early church. Both in the Bible itself, the New Testament, using archaeological evidence, anything he could find to figure out what the early church looked like, how they modeled themselves and constructed themselves, but most importantly, how did they build up churches and become this massive movement where people just were flooding in to the church. And I mean, obviously the Christian church not only just expanded in the first few hundred years, but it became the most dominant social force the world has ever seen. Well, how did that happen? And that was really what he wanted to do, was figure out why were they so attractive? What was it about this early church where people thought, yeah, no, 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 what they're doing, that's, that's amazing, and they started to flood in and want to know more. And Wayne makes, uh, there's lots of things in the book we don't have time to get into, but what I want to share with you now is that these four, there were really four things going on in the world at the time, social movements, 
that related to some degree with the church, but were also a bit different. I'll explain what I mean by that. But here's the first one. The Jewish people had something called a synagogue. And the synagogue was a meeting place for Jewish people where they would get together and they would sing psalms and hymns and they would read from what we now call the Old Testament. They wouldn't call it that. Obviously, that's their Bible. But they would read from the prophets from Isaiah and Jeremiah and they would sing and discuss scripture and relate to one another. Well, the Christians took a lot of those same things and started doing them in their churches. Let's read the scriptures. Let's talk about it. Let's sing songs to God. The second thing Meeks brought up was something called the philosophic school. The philosophic school were these schools in the Greco-Roman world where they would look at people like Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus, and they would build these schools around these philosophers and completely dedicate themselves to the teachings of these philosophers. Well, the Christians thought, who better to dedicate ourselves to in, in learning than Jesus? And so it wasn't just, you know, from time to time you'd crack a Bible or go to church and that was it. They committed themselves to just constant, rigorous pursuit of learning what it is that Jesus taught, why he taught it, what it meant for their lives. They committed themselves to each other, constantly encouraging and exhorting one another to learn the scriptures as much as they possibly could. And this was attractive because at the time, the philosophic schools were already considered a big deal. So Jesus was presented as sort of this gr the greatest teacher of all, right? The third thing was something called the voluntary association. This was interesting because the voluntary associations were what you might call an affinity group. There were groups of people in the Greco-Roman world that would get together with other people that shared something in common. So if you had people in the same trade, you would get together with other people of your trade and you would just eat and drink and be merry and talk and maybe you know, make fun of the boss behind their back or whatever, right? And they would just, and it didn't have to be a trade, it could be anything, anything that would bring people together, they had these, what call, they called voluntary associations. And the voluntary associations would have somebody who was wealthy who would back them up financially pay for the food and the drink and whatever it was, the patrons they were called. And sometimes they would build statues for their patrons to honor them. Hey, thanks for all the money. We're going to use some of your money to build a statue for you and put it outside of our, our association. Some of the associations became subversive and were even considered illegal by the Roman government. The Roman government didn't know what to do with early churches. They didn't know how to categorize them, but they needed to. So a lot of early Christian churches were actually categorized this way by the Roman government. They were considered voluntary associations. But there was something unique about them is they weren't really quite like the associations because the people coming to the churches weren't all there because they all did the same trade. They weren't there because they had one patron who they all came to build statues to, although the Christian churches did have patrons. But they weren't building statues to their patrons like the associations were. They weren't honoring them in the same way. So there were people pouring money into these churches, but they weren't putting up statues for those people, and the Romans thought that was really odd, right? That's why, what's so different or unique about them. And then the final model was this, the household. A Greco-Roman household was not like our households. A Greco-Roman household was actually sort of the cell of early life in both the Greco-Roman environment and in the Jewish environment. The Jews and the Greco-Roman people had both had households as the cornerstone of all of society. And a household now, right, it's just usually your immediate family lives in your household, and that's who hangs out with you in your household. And if you meet with other people, you either invite them over or you go out. But the households in the Greco-Roman period and in the Jewish world were not like that. The households were places where all people that had any association with you would be attracted to your household and it would work and function as sort of the centerpiece of life for you. So you would have one person who owned the household 
but then they would have a spouse and their children, and then they would have people around them, friends, family. They would have servants. Many of the wealthy ones would have slaves, and all of these people would be a part of the household in an intimate and daily sense. They were constantly there in the household, and their lives essentially were run by being members of this household. But there was a deep hierarchy to all this. There was always one man at the top, and then very close by would be his spouse, and then his children, and then there was a trickle-down effect. Then the servants, then the slaves, then the people from outside of the household who were attracted into the household because of business transactions or whatever, but they were all still part of that household, paterfamilias they were called, this sort of idea that if you were attracted to a particular household, that household defined you. Your entire social ability to function in society was based on which household you were attached to, and you were intimately involved in the daily workings of that household, and it was quite large, and it extended out to a very large group of people. Now, you have then all through the New Testament, I'm only going to give you one example for time's sake, but passages like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, this is Paul writing to the Romans. A deacon of the church in Sancria, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need of you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Now, this wasn't just a house where people showed up at to have church. This is, the Greek terms here are ekklesia and oikos. Essentially, these Greek terms mean not just a house like we would think of it, but the household. So not the physical structure, but the unit of people who associate with the household itself in a very intimate way. Christian churches in the first century ultimately were more modeled by the household concept than anything else. Because they, there was one thing above all they valued more than anything. That God, who was their God, was not just his, the king, although he was, but he was their father, and that they were a family of brothers and sisters in an intimate way that extended beyond even just the way the Greco-Roman or Jewish societies would have thought of the household. It wasn't just the people who were sort of attached in by necessity, but anybody who loved God was welcome, and when they came in, they joined the household in an intimate way in the way they would have thought of households at the time, meaning that everything about your social interaction with the world around you was tied to that group of people, and that group of people and your involvement with that group of people defined you in that society more than any other aspect of your life. That was your family now. Now, here's also what's interesting, is this family was incredibly unique in the Greco-Roman world. Let's look at this quote by Meeks, who wrote that book. He said, the local structure of the early Christian groups was thus linked with what was commonly regarded as the basic unit of society. The church as the new household is thus the basic cell of the Christian movement, and it was made up of these four basic ideas. First, the intimate family approach. When you joined a household church, it, again, it wasn't, it's, you know, you would go to a house like we might go to our small groups here at Christ City, but you thought of these people as your family, not just the people you met with once in a while to read the Bible with. They're your family, and it was an intimate family environment. God was your father, and these were your brothers and sisters in a very real way. Second, you were, those individual house churches always still thought of themselves as, the as a part of the church more widely. This is all over the New Testament, where Paul would say to various house churches, make sure you also recognize so-and-so's house church or so-and-so's house church. They were always 
understanding that they were one part of a very wide network of these household environments where people were following God together as a family. Third, they were separate from the world but open. Separate from the world in the sense that they knew that their family constituted something unique that not everybody was a part of. It was for the people who would come into the household through their relationship with Jesus. But they were open to people coming in. There was always this openness that if somebody got saved in the area, somebody down the street, somebody in your neighborhood got saved, they were going to be invited to be a part of the family too. Normal households didn't function that way, right? Like the normal Greco-Roman or even Jewish households didn't quite function in a way where it was so open that anybody who came along and just wanted to jump in could jump in. They were more protective of their households, but the early Christians were just welcoming to anyone, and that was a shock to the Greco-Roman system. It was really strange to them that it functioned this way. And finally, they were egalitarian, and this is what I mean by egalitarian. I talked about the fact that in the Jewish world, they sort of ignored or rejected this desire or need to reach out and be a light to the nations, even though that was what they were supposed to be doing the whole time. The early Christians finally got it, and you started to have, for the first time, Jews and Gentiles, and essentially all that means is Jews and anyone who's not Jewish, coming to faith in Christ and meeting in the same homes, not just meeting in homes, but becoming a part of the same household structures, joining one another in family in the faith, for the first time, and this had never happened before in history, where Jews and Gentiles were doing this together. You had Jewish people and Greek people and Roman people and even people from the north of Africa who had moved into that area of the empire that were all getting saved in the same parts of the of, of regions of the empire, the same cities, and joining in the same households in intimate relationship. What's more is in the, the Greco-Roman household structure, you had the man at the top, then his spouse, then his children, then the servants, then the slaves. In these Christian household structures, we have all sorts of evidence that it didn't work that way. That everybody functioned on an equal level to the point where even slaves would come into these house churches and while they were meeting as a family, they weren't treated as slaves. They were treated just like everybody else. Which is also why slaves started to get saved in the early Greco-Roman environment in very large numbers. Because it was the one place they knew they could go and worship and be accepted as equal with everybody else in the room. And they never really had to worry about the fact that they didn't have free status. It was an egalitarian environment, the, the likes that the world at that time had never seen. Because they knew that they were all brothers and sisters in faith. Paul talks about this in his letter to uh, um, Philemon, about Onesimus, the slave. Where he says he is one of us, he's a member of the faith. There was no distinction between them. And this really then puts a whole new spin on this very popular verse in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is near, there, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, those distinctions didn't stop existing in a real way, right? Free people and slaves still existed at the time. Males and females were still male and female. Jews and Gentiles were still Jew and Gentile. Paul's point here is that in the context of family, in the households of faith, none of these distinctions mattered anymore. They were all, they, they went away. And even children, when they were born, they were considered immediately to be equal parts of the households of faith, where in the Greco-Roman world, they were not considered that way. Children had essentially zero rights in the ancient world, but in the household of faith, they were welcomed as full members of the household. 
So this idea that the early church, the, the horizontal aspect of the gospel, brings us together in unity, and this is what we get in Ephesians, and I'll just reread this uh, very quickly, and then we'll be done. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, so Paul's talking to Gentiles, called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, meaning basically slandered by Jewish people for not being Jewish. It says in verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, but hope with, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh, the, the, in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, no divisions, out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, and not just between Jews and Gentiles, but all hostility, all separations, all divisions, flattened out with Christ as our older brother and God as our father. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also, catch that, members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what it means to be a family of faith, modeled on the household concept. They didn't even start building church buildings, by the way, until about the mid-third century. Eventually, it became a necessity because Christianity just exploded, and why not, right? When you're all welcomed into a household, and you're all treated as equal, and even the patrons who are giving all the money to the church, they're not expecting statues. They don't want to be honored in any special way. They're doing it because they love God and love their family. And if you didn't have the means to do that, then you contributed in some other way. Everybody was just joining in as family members in this beautiful way where vertically we're forgiven by God and brought into his family and horizontally he breaks down all walls and barriers and unites us as one as a family of faith regardless of Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, adult, child, rich, poor, it didn't matter. And this is what it means to be a part of the family of faith. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be a family based on this household concept and to know that right here in this room, this is our household of faith for those of us who are here and, and, and consistent and, and that this is an open environment for those who want to join in, that we're, we're here to welcome them and be thankful for them as well. And we know all of that is made possible by you. We're grateful ultimately that you are our father, that we can come to you as our father and our king be co-heirs and co-regents in this kingdom that you are continually blessing us with. We're grateful for you, God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.